Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne and I'm delighted to be joining you today as your new presenter. I know I have some big shoes to fill and on that I do want to thank our editor Sinead O'Carroll, who's hanging up her podcast boots for now anyway, for all her dedication to this podcast to date. So this week on the podcast, as we enter a new year, we're asking, how can you make your money go further in 2023? Now, given that we're now well into January, most of us will be scratching our heads and wondering where all the money went. That long stretch between Christmas and the first pay package of the year can really bite. So we've had a government budget that promised measures to stave off the worst of the cost of living increases. But will it be possible to make our money go further this year? To look at all of this, we have financial expert Nick Sharalambus, who's the managing director of Alpha Wealth. Nick, many thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure, Laura. Thank you for having me. So, Nick, what exactly are the changes that government introduced as part of Budget 2023 that people are going to see in their first paycheck of the year? The main, I suppose, big ticket item that people will notice, particularly for the middle income owners, is that the top rate of tax was increased. The threshold previously was 36,800 a year that you could earn. It's now gone up to 40,000 a year. And what that effectively means in people's pockets is that you should be better off by about 640 euros a year. There is an additional tax credit as well. So I think the first pace of the year, hopefully for most of those people who are earning over 40,000, would look a little bit more favourable. What other new measures have come into effect? I know the rent credit is one of them. That's right. So there is a rent credit for those people who are renting, which effectively is uh, retrospective for last year, and it's worth up to 500 euros a year. I think Pascal Donoghue said that it will affect about 400,000 people this year. So that should be, I suppose, a bit of a saving for those who are renting currently. A couple of the other measures, and I don't want to go through the negatives, but the benefit in kind changes that were announced last year are now taking effect. Unfortunately, for those people who have company cars, it is going to mean that they're going to see more of a deduction on their payslip. Some of the other measures that will take effect from now, which may be not as noticeable, are that the minimum wage has been increased um, to €11.30 per hour that, that had taken effect at the time of the budget last year, but also that employees are now legally entitled to three days sick pay even in the event of being out of work, which is capped up to a maximum of €110 per day or 70% of their salary. And I know you mentioned the minimum wage and and also people over 40k. What about the people in the middle of those? Will they see any changes? It's going to be very, very subtle differences. As I I mentioned, there's there's slight changes to tax credits. But for that, I suppose, cohort of people that were earning over the minimum wage, but less than the 40,000 a year, it's not really going to be that noticeable, um, if truth be told. Obviously, we're in the height of winter post-Christmas. One of the most pressing concerns for people this year, of course, is energy bills, the first of which are likely landing around now. Now, there is an energy credit available. Do people need to do anything to claim that? It's a good point in that there's a bit of uncertainty about whether people need to claim or not. Um, Thankfully, it is automatic. I know because I I checked it myself, um, being, I suppose, a a domestic energy customer that I am. But the €600 credit, um, effectively, the first payment was made in November. We may have not necessarily have realised, but there's going to be a second credit in January this month and also then a third credit in March. So thankfully, that should give some reprise to the, I suppose, 
you know, inflated energy costs that we've found ourselves facing over the last number of months. And how high are these bills expected to be, Nick? What should people do if they're worried about their ability to pay them? I, I have a slightly more positive view, perhaps, than maybe some of the media in that we've seen that the cost of wholesale gas, for example, has come down quite considerably. Now, while it's not going to be evidenced in the, the bills that we face, because generally there is a bit of a, a lag, so it's going to take quite a while for these to kind of manifest, we have strangely had quite a mild winter which hopefully has helped from a point of view of the consumption that we've had but also i suppose the fact that we we are you know demands are not as high particularly where we've had restrictions as we all are aware so i'd like to think that there is going to be some i suppose comfort to energy users that we will start to see the cost of energy coming down rather than going up but in this uncertain world I wouldn't say that definitively. Uh, I'd be very slow to say that it's an absolute. Yeah, I mean, certainty is in short supply, I guess, given what's happening in Ukraine. It, it is interesting this week that I think Flowgas is offering set tariffs, which some are saying is a suggestion that we might be coming out of the worst of it. But as you say, it's difficult to say. I mean, is it is it still important to look at energy savings in your home? It is absolutely, Laura. And the key message that I would give all of your listeners is, they need to kind of be very mindful of this thing. And I know it sounds fairly bland and and boring, but like shopping around. And I say that genuinely as a consumer myself, you know, I moved energy um, supply last year. It was painful enough, if truth be told, you know, ringing up, um, having to hold and so on and so forth. But it was well worthwhile. I got a 40% joint discount between my electricity and gas. And I'm really pleased that I, I suppose I did that. But it is definitely worth, um, I suppose, exploring. And there are some good sites available that people can get, you know, these ready reckoners uh, and so on. And I'm not here to plug uh, sites or indeed, but certainly it would be worth exploring them further. And again, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but if anyone is unaware, they should probably reach out to somebody just to get some guidance and assistance on that. I mean, it's great to see that that message still works because I did anecdotally hear some people say, well, what's the point in shifting? All the all the bills are high, but it's great that there, there's savings to be made. And as you say, it can be a difficult thing to do. One of the really difficult things to do, of course, is to switch mortgage providers. And we do, we are in an increasing mortgage rate cycle here. What's your advice for people on that front? So this has become really topical in the kind of the finance, um, personal finance world. As advisors and as independent advisors, what we are saying to people is you've got an opportunity and it's a very limited uh, window. And I would suggest that realistically, it's probably the month of January, possibly slightly into February, where you need to look at your mortgage. So we have people who, for example, were on uh, tracker mortgages who benefited from this really low interest rate environment for the last 12, 13 years. And over the last two months, it would certainly make sense for quite a few number of those people to look at their mortgage rate and see whether there's an opportunity to fix for a long period. The main, I suppose, obstacle that we find with people is because they feel that there's a lot of hassle in moving mortgage and the pain that they went through to get their mortgage in the first place, they're a little bit reluctant to do this. And what I say to them is that, The main thing I would suggest strongly to anyone who has a mortgage is talk to your existing bank. Even if you've got a fixed rate mortgage that is not going to expire for another two years or so, I would talk to your bank this month 
and I would find out something uh, from them, which is, can you fix your mortgage for a period of five to 10 years from now? And the reason why I say that is because we all understand and know that interest rates, albeit that they've risen, are likely to rise a little bit higher. And it's probably going to take at least three or four years before the interest rate cycle starts to fall. Again, we don't know definitively, but in my professional opinion, I'm fairly clear on the fact that if you could fix your mortgage today and some of the banks are offering relatively favorable long-term rates still, uh, Bank of Ireland, for example, are offering 3.5% over 10 years for typical mortgages in the, the loan-to-value ratio of 90 uh, to 80 to 90% without even looking at the BR ratings of the house and so on. I would strongly encourage people to consider those options. But even if you're with the likes of PTSB or indeed any of the other banks, I would talk to your existing bank and see what your options are. And it's very, very simple to switch internally. There's no real drama in that. I think that's it, isn't it? There's, there's a suggestion that, you know, having to switch your, your actual tariff or your, your going from variable to fixed does not mean you have to apply for a new mortgage. So start with your own bank. And if you don't get anywhere with your own bank, is there any easier options? Do you go to a broker or literally just try every other bank? I, I'd say to people that who who haven't been successful in dealing with their own bank, talk to uh, an independent mortgage broker. And the reason for that is because the mortgage broker not only should make the process a lot easier for you, and it is important that you speak to a, a good mortgage broker and make sure that they're working for you. Everyone is really busy in this environment. And look, you know, the mortgage market is no different. But there is, I suppose, a way of getting a one-stop shop where you're effectively walking all into all the banks at the same time. I'm not really a big fan of people going into, you know, the main street banks and having the mortgage review. It's painful. It's unnecessary. And I would suggest that it's better for you to deal directly with an independent who knows how to navigate the market. Having said that, Laura, I do think that you do need to be a little bit discursive about, you know, who you use. I've heard situations of some mortgage brokers charging as much as 500 euros and they require full information from the clients before they'd even talk to them. And I just think that in this environment, it's probably worth just considering, you know, what are you paying for versus what you're going to get from them? Typically, a lot of them rebate that fee if you do the business with them. And they do have certain, I suppose, ways of tying you down. But I certainly would suggest that it, it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, I suppose, absolutely um, important to be paying such large fees to get kind of an independent level of advice. It's funny you mentioned tracker mortgages. They were always the holy grail of the mortgages. So you're very clear here. There is no relief inside. We're we're shifting away from the low interest rate cycle. And I mean, if you're on a tracker mortgage, should you be thinking about fixing? It was always the advice was to never fix if you had a tracker. That's right, Laura. And as I said, up until a couple of months ago, that would still have been the advice. But we've seen obviously interest rates rise quite considerably. I think we've been quite fortunate in Europe versus the US and the UK who have seen much headier rises in their interest rates. It, it isn't a one fits all. There are people who are on trackers that should remain on a tracker. And I know this might sound a little bit strange, but there are good trackers and then there's not so good trackers. And what I mean by that is that anyone who I suppose is paying a tracker of say less than 1% above the ECB rate, I would regard as a good tracker. Anyone who's paying above 1%, which happened to a number of people, particularly if you moved your tracker 
but some of the banks allowed people to take their tracker with them when they move properties, but they applied a 1%, I suppose, additional cost to them, they certainly wouldn't be very advantageous. But the, the reason I say there's not a one foot all is that some people who have a long term to the expiry of their mortgage, let's say 20 years from now, because of the fact that interest rates are rising now, isn't an immediate need for them to move their mortgage because uh, from the tracker, because if you you know, feel that you can take some pain for the next three or four years and then potentially benefit from the further 15 years at slightly lower rates, it may actually be more advantageous to stay on your tracker because once you give up the tracker, you'll never get it back again. But in the same breath, you know, again, if you can get a very attractive long-term fixed rate, let's say for 10 years, I would certainly suggest it's worth considering. But the key message today is explore without too much hassle before you make a decision. And it's about making an informed decision. And this, I suppose, theory, dare I say, or, you know, analysis of don't ever get off the tracker certainly doesn't apply anymore. Of course, moving away from mortgages, anyone with small children will know that mortgages aren't the only burden on families and childcare is a huge burden in this country. Can people take the pressure off in any way following the budget uh, looking into 2023? Again, this is a really topical area. And as a parent of four children in a blended family, I suppose I speak from first-hand experience. All I can give a message of today is try to plan early. And I know it sounds very holistic, but like if you are, I suppose, planning on having children or more children, or indeed, if you have young children, it's really important to try and sort of plan. And and I'm a great believer, I suppose, I came from an environment where, you know, um, my parents were kind of very much into the philosophy of, you know, saving for the rainy day, that if you can try and sort of put monies aside for things like, you know, crash fees, education costs, third level education at an early stage, it just makes, you know, the pain, you know, less. Now, again, I pre-say in the world that we live in, it isn't always possible. And we're being faced, you know, with rising interest rates, which is costing us more on debt. We're facing increased, you know, costs of childcare and so on. But this is back to, I suppose, what I was saying earlier about, you know, plan, but talk to somebody where it's about trying to find the right balance. You know, we all earn, well, sorry, most of us are in seat of income. How do we spend that? Do we apply ourselves in, in saving adequately for the here and now and also then for the future? And Nick, when it comes to people's debt levels, if they're turning to debt right now to just get through this difficult period or they're already struggling to get out of debt, what advice would you have for them? Look, at, again, I appreciate why people have debt for things like, you know, buying a car. You know, you may have got into a situation where you've been forced to take out debt. Um, we try and help our clients and try and, I suppose, help people understand that reducing the, the cost of the debt. And I always talk about, you know, what is the interest cost? You know, some people say to me, OK, I have a car loan and I'm paying, you know, 250 euros back and, and I say to them, but what is the rate of interest on that loan? Typically, you know, car loans tend to be around six, seven, eight percent per year of a cost. And obviously, if you could get that onto a mortgage, which generally would be around two and a half to three percent, it's it's a better form of debt. So it's about trying to kind of make sure you're packaged correctly. Um, and the most, I suppose, powerful takeaway I'd like to give your listeners today is do a financial budgeter. 
it really is such a powerful tool. It's, you know, free. You shouldn't have to pay for it. There's one available on our website, but there's a lot of tools that people can Google. And the process of doing that uh, serves two purposes. One is that it shows you where you're spending your money. And I think naturally for all of us, you know, we tend to overspend, particularly if we earn more, you know, anyone who gets a pay rise or a bonus, they find that they don't really see the benefit of that because we just adjust our spending to what we earn. The process of doing the the budgeter is, is hopefully helping them understand about what it is that they should have at the end of the month and then trying to kind of make sure that they are uh, planning appropriately and typically trying to reduce down debt. I have a lot of clients who have money in the bank, but also have loans. And look, I appreciate the reason why sometimes people have this kind of need to keep money where it's accessible. But having money in the bank, earning next to 0% interest and having loans which are costing you 5, 6, 7, 8% plus doesn't really make sense. And it's about just maybe getting someone who is independent, helping you to understand about how to manage your money. And Nick, with all of this going on, people are probably looking at their outgoings, they're paring back and what they don't really need to be spending money on. We all know the typical stop buying avocado toast trope. But is forsaking an occasional takeaway coffee worth it? Or are there really big picture things that you should be focusing on instead? There, there are, Laura, in that, you know, we've spoken about, you know, mortgages. I mean, that's a huge expense and that potentially can save, you know, thousands of euros. Don't mind, you know, I suppose what the cost of a, a daily cappuccino can. Albeit that what I say to people is you have to, I suppose, do the best you can. And whilst I'm not one for forsaking the things that people really enjoy, you know, personally speaking, I do sometimes partake in, you know, the odd cappuccino here and there, especially if I'm meeting somebody. But, you know, we have a coffee machine in the office here and personally I think it tastes just as good or better and it's more of a kind of a mindset change but the, the the key thing is that small incremental changes over a long time can make a big difference i mean if you add up the cost of those cappuccinos over the period of a year it does make quite an indent so now it's not just a cappuccino it's the cappuccino plus the reduced cost of you know your mortgage and the reduce costs of your mortgage protection and making sure that you're shopping around for health insurance. And once you add up all of those things, it amounts to a large amount of money. Everything you say really is about just trying to get control of everything and being mindful. I think being mindful about our money is probably no different to being mindful about what we eat, how we exercise, that kind of thing. Uh, in terms of saving, I always feel that I wish we could go back 30 years, 40 years in my life and have learned how to save and the importance of it. I wish we could have learned this in school. But saving money is tricky when you're trying to pay the bills. What are the best methods, though? What, what advice would you have for anyone struggling to save? I'm going to sound like a broken record here, Laura, but um, going back to the financial budgeter, I suppose, is a starting point because it should allow you to understand about what there is available. And then it's a case of, you know, deciding what's important to you. So again, you know, I talk to clients and what I try and do is compartmentalize, you know, the time scale. So I say to them, okay, short term is zero to three years. Medium term is three years to your retirement age. So depending on how old you are and when you're looking to sort of take life a bit easier, that could be anything from 10 years if you're 50 and want to retire at 60 to 30 years if you're 35 and are happy to keep working until you're 65. And what we then do is we try and sort of plan and say, okay, what are your objectives in the next three years? Do you want to try and buy a property? Do you want to try and buy a, a car, go away on a really nice holiday? 
have you funded appropriately for that? And that type of savings generally tends to focus around the bank, credit union or post office. There's nothing really that you can do within that time frame that's going to make sense outside of those institutions. You won't earn any interest, but the money's safe and it's there and you know it's going to be there when you need it in the next 6, 12, 18 months. However, for the longer term planning, so for example, let's say, you know, there's a couple and they're looking to get married in the next five years and they say, okay, well, we've estimated that we would like to have 20,000 for that particular purpose. It's about, again, this planning, you know, saying, okay, well, what's required? You know, if you save 3,300 a month for the next four to five years, that would generate the return. And as long as you try and keep pace with inflation, and there are savings plans out there, some of the insurance companies have what I would suggest are quite attractive plans available to people over that sort of four to five year time frame that you can start to sort of make provisions for those types of events. And then again, you extrapolate further then into sort of your retirement planning. So it's the same really in terms of pensions. What is What are you trying to sort of achieve? Make sure that you understand where you are now and then set out the correct roadmap for yourself. So if we can go beyond that in terms of saving money, uh, traditionally banks, as you say, are the best places. What about, I've heard some people suggest even prize bonds and again, people using things like Revolut vaults these days. Are they of any use? Yeah, I've never been a big fan of prize bonds, um, albeit safe. And again, it depends on the type of individual. Um, the issue I have with them is that the the probability of winning now is far less than it used to be. And you know, I've not really come across people who have done particularly well from them. Um, and they're just too conservative because we know at the moment that inflation is, you know, I suppose it's it's quite significant. It will come down. And I suppose long-term inflation should be in around about 3%, um, in my opinion. But you're not going to meet that if you leave money um, for too long. The likes of the Revolut votes, and I suppose, look, there is uh, the younger cohort of people who are more familiar with, you know, the likes of the Revoluts. Um, they serve a purpose to a degree. You know, I have no issue with them, but I'd be slow to kind of suggest that people use them. And then what happens is they start to kind of like invest in shares through their their, their votes and do other things that they probably wouldn't ordinarily do. So it, it's really around the whole risk return profile. What are you trying to achieve and how long do you have to do it? The general rule is that the longer you do something for, the more risk you should accept. So, for example, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm 49 years of age. I have a very defined plan. Um, my youngest child is eight years of age. So essentially, I'm looking at around 63 years of age that I'll be when he will get to an age of independence. And that allows me then the opportunity to take a certain level of risk with my pension scheme because it has 15 years to go through the cycles of, you know, growth. And yes, dare I say it, uh, falls that we witnessed all last year, but it hasn't really affected my decision making when it comes to the risk level because that hasn't really changed. And it's a little bit like that when it comes to your savings, you know, how long have you got to save for and does it allow you then to sort of try and earn interest or do you need to keep it somewhere where it's completely safe? You can't discuss finances in Ireland without mentioning pensions and you touched on it there. And health insurance, we've also mentioned earlier, they're two big issues in this country, very, very burdensome. Uh, we have a pension problem in that people don't have enough and they're not getting them on time. Is there anything they can do to take the pressure off their wallet? If you're in the late 40s bracket and you haven't got a pension, where do you start? 
So interestingly, um, I saw a statistic where 50% of people in Ireland have a pension scheme. Now, I'm not here to dramatize, but I think most of us realize that the state pension, which is approximately about 13,000 a year, which is not a payable until you're 66 years of age, is not really going to cut it for a lot of us. Having said that, it's about trying to do what you can. And again, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about this balance. So, you know, if you can make provisions for the short term and the medium term, obviously it should allow you to then make provisions for the longer term, which tends to be the pension. And the key thing is to understand that firstly, the government are doing certain things in the future to help people. There is a mandatory kind of pension that employees will be forced to pay on behalf of their employees from 2024. It's called auto-enrollment. It was supposed to be introduced a number of years ago. We hope that it will be introduced next year um, where companies will have to pay at least 1% of the employee's salary and it's going to increase incrementally every year thereafter. Really, the key thing I would say to anyone around pensions is that they are a very tax-effective savings vehicle. My industry overcomplicates you know, these types of products and it bamboozes people with, um, I suppose, jargon and phraseology. But for any listener out there, if you put 100 euros into your pension plan, if you're earning less than the 40,000 a year, so you're on the standard rate of tax, you get 20 euros back from revenue. If you're earning over 40,000 a year, you get 40 euros back from revenue. So for a high rate taxpayer, that 40 euros, so it means that you get a cost of 60 euros for the benefit of 100. That's a 66% return. It's enormous. People often ask me, what's the best investment? And I say to them, it's a pension scheme. And I'm not saying it to be glib. And it's more about then understanding where are you on this kind of financial life cycle? Um, you know, for those in their 40s, a lot of them can access their pensions from 50 years of age onwards. So it's not that it's a long time away that they can't really touch and see it. The key issue, I suppose, for a lot of people is that these are not physical products. You know, a lot of people say, well, yeah, I don't really like the risk in, in the pension scheme. I, I, I heard that it could fall in value. And I say to people, it doesn't have to. You can put your pension into cash. The reason why people don't do that is because they don't want to see the value of their pension erode. And it goes back to what I was saying about the time that people have. Obviously, again, the longer you have, the more risk you should accept, but get advice. And that's, that's, I suppose, uh, you know, really important as well. Finally, and thanks so much for your time today. What's the one quick, simple thing you would offer uh, as advice to our listeners to make their 2024 easier? What could they do in 2023 to mitigate any, any pain next year? My advice is to pay yourself first. And what I mean by that, Laura, is that as a general rule, and again, it's specific to any to an individual, but whatever you earn, typically a third of that goes on debt, generally a mortgage for those who have it, or you know, rent payments and so on. A third of that goes on your expenditures, you know, your living and so on, and a third of that should be saved. Now, again, we break savings down into those short, medium and long term. But what I say to people is you should aim to do that first. It, what I, it's what I call reframing. The problem a lot of people tend to find is that we all have bills to pay. We all have things that we want to spend our money on. And then we decide at the end of the month what's left over we try and save. And the issue with that is that, unfortunately, sometimes that just doesn't work out the way we want it to. Now, again, I appreciate it sounds very holistic, but what I'm saying about pay yourself first is 
save the money as the first thing you do and spend the rest. That's the way that typically I think people can help themselves. So commit to a savings plan. Make sure that it's the cheapest plan you can get. Don't overpay on fees. There's a lot of variation in costs. I mentioned, I suppose, about, you know, checking things out. You asked me about health insurance earlier. You know, as an example, I give advice on health insurance to individuals. And the main thing is just to make sure that you're not overspending. A lot of people don't have the the right health insurance for themselves. It can be a very expensive plan. Get the online discounts. Make sure that you don't pay for more than one child. A lot of the insurance companies offer various inducements. Um, I've already ever paid for one of my children. And you can find yourself saving quite a lot of money. But the key thing, I suppose, Laura, in answer to your question is um, make sure that you are saving first and that the money that's left over is then yours to spend, basically. Many thanks for all of that, Nick, and really plenty for our listeners to digest there and some really helpful tips too. And thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it, Laura, and thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to to speak to your listeners today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thanks to Nick Sharalambas of Alpha Wealth for breaking all of that down for us today. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.